Now, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you, please, to turn with me uh, to Zechariah chapter 11. You'll find this reading in your pew Bible on page 956. And this is a mighty strange passage. And I've struggled uh, to see how I might understand it and how I might bring this passage uh, to church this morning. I'm still praying that the Lord would speak through his word and speak to us uh, as, as weird and as wonderful as this passage really is. But let's hear God's word and begin at verse 4. This is what the Lord my God says. Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered. His right eye totally blinded. We end the end of that chapter and praying that the Lord uh, would speak to us. Amen. Yep, it was weird. And uh, as we make our way through this, hopefully we will uh, sense something of its meaning and its, its purpose. Now, as I begin uh, with this passage, it just got me thinking that there was one box in our house at home which was always a bit of a, a favourite thing, and that was the dressing up box. And knowing that Bethany wasn't going to be here this morning, I thought I could do this. 
Um, that dressing up box contains everything uh, from princesses to witches. It's got everything uh, from where's Wally uh, through to a minion and a donkey or two uh, along the way. Uh, and also it, it put me in mind of, of some of you ones can remember what Youth Club of Old uh, used to be like, and there was always one significant night in the year when it was the fancy dress night, and you can remember some of the leaders uh, used to excel in that particularly, perhaps even more than the kids. And, and so dressing up uh, may be a bit of a thing uh, with the kids in your home. That is what is actually going on in this passage, uh, believe it or not, and that Zechariah does a bit of dressing up, and he does that to teach. And there's a particular genre of the, the Old Testament prophets as they did that, and it was called a, a sign act. In other words, they were acting out something that was to be a sign. And so even in that, that there was teaching. Ezekiel is one of the, the sort of major prophets who, who does that. There's a couple of things in Ezekiel's life, if you remember on one occasion, he was told to lie on his side for days on end, and then he was to turn over and lie on his other side for, for days on end. And the, the meaning and the purpose of that is, is, is that this was to prefigure the number of years that the people of Israel would be in exile and in captivity. On another occasion, Ezekiel was told to cook his own food using human excrement as the fuel. And that was a message to convey to the people that when you're taken off into exile, that you're going to be eating unclean food. So you can see what they're doing by, by way of teaching even through this. And what Zechariah does in this occasion is that he dresses up uh, as shepherds. Uh, there's a, a good shepherd, and then later on there's the, the foolish shepherd. Now, as we, I'm going to maybe even more than normal, look at, at this passage when we, when we read our way through it and, and highlight a lots of the different verses that are here. It's heavy, heady sort of stuff. And I'm just asking for your indulgence and that you bear with me as we try and make sense of, of what's here. I have to be honest is that I feel a little bit inadequate to speaking from this passage. In some ways, it's uh, more suited to a lecture and uh, an academic hall, as it were. We go into all the details that are here that we're not really able to do today. You will find as we make our way through this, and I draw out maybe some of the pointers that will help us towards interpretation, but that you will see little things pointing forward, maybe to even the destruction of Jerusalem itself, little hints of that, AD 70, and maybe even to Masada as well, as people have I said, there's some of these things. But there's also references to, to events and circumstances in the life of Jesus himself. So all these things are here, and we're going to see some, some of the hints that, that are here. But let's begin just thinking about the role, this dressing up that uh, Zechariah firstly uh, does, and it's the, the good shepherd, and that's in, in verse 7. So he's the, the good shepherd, even though the, the flock here is, des, is described in not so favorable terms, and so he's described as, as I shepherded, as I looked after in a good way, I shepherded the flock that was marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. And I think just 
taking that sense of how he was to be the good shepherd, how he was to be continually showing favor and, and goodness to this flock, even though they didn't deserve it, is that there are hints indeed of what Jesus Christ himself would be once described as. If you were, there's a verse, I think it's Acts chapter 10, verse 38, that describes Jesus, how he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus did is that he went about doing good to others and healing those that were sick. And so that sense of Jesus as the one who was continually and always doing good to others. And there's something in this passage which is prefiguring that. So Zechariah here, he's being the good shepherd, and in his role of, having, of being the good shepherd, it says here that he takes two staffs. Uh, it was normal in the Near East for a shepherd in this time to have two implements. If you remember Psalm 23, verse 4, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So you've got the two things. One was to fight the, the lions and the, and the other beasts away. And the, the other one was more commonly called the staff, was, was the implement with which you guided the sheep, you looked after the sheep, you cared for, for the sheep. But Zechariah here, as you look, he actually gives them two names. And he calls one of them favor, which is saying something about the care, the love, the pleasantness of the Lord's continued care of his people, irrespective of how bad they might be, how far they might drift, he still shows care and love. And the other one he calls union, which is a picture of the essential relationship that God has with his people. And so that we are connected to, to God himself. Now for all of that positivity, now, as we have read that passage, you'll know there's not much else uh, that is good in this passage. It's pretty horrific. There's no way that I can sugarcoat any of that. For instance, you see how the flock is described in verse 4. It is clearly here described as being marked for slaughter. And down to verse 6, you, you see what God thinks of his continued relationship with the sheep. He says, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land. So we've got Zechariah here acting out the part of a good shepherd. And even though we know that Zechariah has the best of intentions, we know that Zechariah is showing us what it is to be a good shepherd and to have a love for God. What seems to be clear also is that the people are not in the same boat is that they are not as passionate and as focused on God as Zechariah himself is. And I think that must be the central core of this passage. It is the fact that the people of God here are not focused on God, they are not centered upon God, and that they are drifting, and that's why he's using all these terms. So there's no way that we can sugarcoat this, as I've already said, Going back to verse 6, I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So there's sense that there's no hope here. There is nothing good. The die is cast, and, there, and it has not been cast in a good way. And that's what verses 8 through to 10 is really about. And actually, just looking at verse 8, uh, in one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. I'm going to be honest and say I have no idea what that's about. And actually, one of the commentators on this verse says that there are 40, 
40 possible interpretations as to what the three shepherds actually are. Now, when someone writes that down, you begin to wonder, firstly, why did they bother writing that down? Secondly, why did they bother trying to find all that out? Because the clear message is they haven't got a clue. And if you haven't got a clue, there's no point talking about it. Well, that's my way of looking at it. Um, But the main thrust, I think, of all of this is the second half of verse 8, if you read with me because this is getting something of the reaction of God, the reaction of God against his people who have been deserting him. And it says, the flock detested me and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die. And then into verse 10, then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made. Now that's significant because God is doing something here that happens nowhere else. He does something here actually that he has said he would never do and it's the only place where it occurs and it's what God does here is that he breaks his covenant from his side of the bargain. Normally we're always told it's, it's us who drift away, we break our side of the equation and God will never do that. But here God is saying, I'm going to break my side of the bargain. And so it's like God is saying, enough is enough. It's over, I've had enough, I'm clearing off. Now, we can't say that that is the end of the story because if you go back to Zechariah chapter 1, where the whole story is framed, and you look at verse 3, what you see in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, clearly is God saying to the people, if you return to me, I will return to you. So that's the way in which it's framed. But I think a pointer that we have here, and what it's showing us, is that the Old Testament, this message to the Old Testament, people of God, is that the Old Testament in itself was never enough. And we're reaching a point of change that's coming. And this repeated emphasis that the Old Testament, you were never going to find salvation through the Old Testament and through its sacrifices and through its rituals. And that sense the Old Testament is a dead end but the Old Testament was always pointing to the new and if you have been reading this week in your Lent book that little Bible study book that we have been giving out and you've been making your way through Hebrews chapter 8 you have been reminded of that this week that the new was the fulfillment of the old. The old was only a shadow and it was pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do and what Jesus does for us is the final complete word of all of that and that the New Testament promise was always contained within the old even though the old could never fulfill anything. And I want you to look at verse 12. Here, Zechariah is getting his payment for being the good shepherd. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver. I ask you today, does that ring any bells with any of you? Because it should. The payment of 30 pieces of silver here was typically the amount that you would pay for a slave who has passed his working best. In other words, it's a, a dud. You are, it's the lowest 
possible payment that you could make. In other words, it was an insult. And you get a sense of that insult with what Zechariah is told to do with the 30 pieces of silver, verse 13. And the Lord said to me, throw it away, throw it to the potter. The handsome price at which they valued me. Again, you're getting a sense of that insult. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. In other words, at the temple. The potter wouldn't simply have been a potter. He also would have been a metal worker and he took small bits of coinage and he melted them down and he made something useful out of them. But what we have here is the sense of insult. That's clear. And of course, in the life of Jesus, this was fulfilled. Even though this was written hundreds of years before, what we see here is something that was going to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Because what was the Judas, the insult of betrayal? What was Judas paid for his betrayal? He was paid 30 pieces of silver. And what did he do with his 30 pieces of silver? When he felt remorse, he went back to the temple to see the Pharisees who had paid him the money and they th he threw the money at their feet and it fell on the floor of the temple, just as Zechariah has done in this situation, throw it at the potter. So again, this passage, what we're seeing here is this sense of betrayal, a sense of being rejected, personal insult. And that culminates in the next piece of dramatic art that Zechariah does. I'm not going to go into it, but what he does now is he's in his second piece of dressing up, he dresses up as a foolish shepherd. And the import of that is people, by drifting away from God, doing your own thing, ignoring God, you are going to end up with the leaders that you deserve. So that is all heady stuff. It's hard to read, particularly when it talks about relationships of us and God and what happens when we drift away from God. It's, it's, it's challenging. It's difficult. What are we meant to see out of this? Maybe as I stand back from this passage, one of the lessons, I think, must surely be from the... It's this personal sense of pain that does come across that when God's people drift, when God's people reject him, when God's people move away, that God is not dispassionate about that, but that God feels that. You are meant to feel something of the anguish that is in the very heart of God when God's people reject him when God's people are indifferent to him, when God's people give up on him. Now, why do people reject Jesus? We can have all sorts of answers to that, couldn't we? Some people reject Jesus simply because they want to feel that they are in control of their lives and they feel that if they bring Jesus into their life that he might begin to exert his own influence and that may not be what is comfortable because Jesus may have different sets of priorities than we ourselves would naturally have and we want to maintain our own sense of independence and so we, we don't want Jesus, so we reject Jesus. Some people may say that 
Becoming a Christian is so outdated and believing all this stuff and that, that's in the Bible and the priorities that, that are here, it's just not right for today's sophisticated world. And we wonder how our mates would react to that. And so we don't want to admit that we have done anything with Jesus. So we, we, we just reject Jesus. But the reality of all of that, I think, was maybe summarized by something G.K. Chesterton wrote a long time ago which is not that the Christian ideal has been tried and found wanting, but rather it has been found difficult and therefore untried. And that's a question, I think, for all of us out of this passage. In terms of our relationship with Christ, is it the case that you could say that yourself today, that you are genuinely, fully following Jesus Christ? Because if you are not fully committed and following Jesus Christ, what you are doing by inference is that you are rejecting Jesus Christ. Have you listened to the call of Jesus Christ upon your life so that it impacts your life and changes your life and you are doing what Jesus wants you to do? Because if you are not doing that, what you are doing is that you are rejecting Jesus. And the warning from this passage, and as harrowing and as difficult as it is, but the warning is clear that you must not reject Jesus. When you hear the voice of God coming to you in Jesus, in the scriptures, you must not reject that. Because Jesus is the only one who can save you. If you're wanting to have any sense of hope for the future and beyond death, it's Jesus that you need. And rejecting Jesus is that there is no hope for you. And that you will face not even an uncertain death, an uncertain future, but an impossible future because you are not in Jesus Christ. And that is why this passage is so clear about the, the dangers of rejecting God. And God is not indifferent to that. God feels that. God does not will that anyone should perish, but he wants all to come to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what we are meant to see in this passage is something of the pain that exists in the heart of God because God feels this. And some of those same emotions, I think, should be felt by us. I mean, doesn't it say in the scriptures that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to? There is rejoicing in heaven when someone comes to faith. And when someone comes to faith and someone is moving closer to Jesus in our fellowship, there is that, or there should be that same sense of excitement that we share in that, we share in that wonder and that amazement and that we are happy and wonder, wonderful seeing what God is doing. And as you look around here in this place, you can see people's lives and you can see what God has been doing and you rejoice in that. That's why we want to see more of that so that in this past week we had a, a night in here on in in Tuesday night when we're thinking about discipleship and what it means to, to follow and, and serve and honour Jesus Christ. We want to see people growing deeper and going closer and coming closer to Jesus Christ. And we want to step into that joy and that wonder and say this is what is important and this is what we want to see in this church. But at the same time, we should share in the sense of disappointment and hurt and anguish when we see someone for whom that is the opposite, who are going the opposite way and are rejecting Jesus. Someone in whom that the Spirit of God, we could say, was once shining and was once bright and was once clear. And when we see them drifting and when we see them rejecting Jesus, we should 
feel the angst of that. And conversely, that's why we want to see that the gospel is worth investing in. That's why we want to give our energies. That's why we want to, to serve Jesus Christ here in this place because these things are so significant. That's why we want to do whatever we can do here in this place to honor Jesus, to do what we can to create opportunities where people can grow in their relationship, no matter what age they are, from the youngest to the oldest. We want to give ourselves to this creating space here in this church where people can grow in their relationship. And that's why it really is worth investing in these things, even when we run the risk of being disappointed and hurt and feeling the pain and the anguish when someone goes the other way. We want to see people growing in Jesus. So there's something of the personal sense of pain that ministry can offer. And we see in the heart of God himself. But ultimately what this passage points to is that it points to Jesus. Because Jesus, this passage talks about and what Zechariah has been demonstrating as the good shepherd. And Jesus calls himself in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. And when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he also says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And that word full is a very unique word in the New Testament and it is describing something that is so splendidly full. It is overflowing, it is superabundant, it is excessively superior. And if you are a Christian today, if you are standing in Jesus Christ, this is what you should be experiencing. So we ask ourselves, is this what I genuinely am experiencing today? This fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Have you ever been tempted to answer the question, how are you feeling? Or how's things going? With a very Ulster expression, I'm middling. Now we know what we mean by that, don't we? I can remember saying that same thing to a guy who used to play the fiddle in this church a long time ago. Remember Kenny Thompson? And uh, Kenny was great. He was always used to say to him that he was the youngest member of our youth praise team. Uh, he was well into his 70s. And there was one time when he was getting his fiddle ready, I went up to him and uh, was out in the old choir room out there. And Kenny did just pass the time of day with me and say, How was, how's things going? And I said, I'm middling. And then he pointed out to the graveyard behind and he says, there's plenty of people out there who would like to say they're middling. But actually the thing about eternal life is that eternal life doesn't simply begin when we die, but eternal life begins here and now, the moment we bring Jesus Christ into our lives because Jesus offers life in all its fullness. He is the good shepherd and Jesus has set his hand upon you and he's given you a purpose and given value into your life as you listen to him and where he's going. And yet, in the context of this passage, we do need to ask ourselves, are we listening to this? Am I going and doing what Jesus wants me to do? 
Is that what I'm passionate about? Is that what I'm going to invest myself in? Or am I being distracted and allowing the devil himself to steal these things from me? Let's pray. Our Father, your word, as we have read it this morning from this passage, can be challenging. It can be difficult to understand. And even what we can understand is is hard at times to stomach. But Lord, we pray that you would let us see enough of ourselves and enough of you to know what it is that you are saying by your Holy Spirit to us today. So Lord, we pray that you would take your word and indeed that you would plant it deep in us. Ultimately, we want to see Jesus and we want to honor Jesus in our own lives and in the life of this church. Amen.